0: Rural hospitals are as unique as the communities they serve with their own set of demographics, their own geography, and their own local history, all of which can be a detriment or an asset to their success as an organization. So how do rural hospitals leverage their unique positions to best serve their communities and build long-term sustainability?
1: With smart investments, strategic direction, and a community-oriented approach.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm JJ Hodshire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Welcome to episode 122 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Latt, Chief Communications Officer.
1: Rachel, our guest today, is one of my good friends. Uh, I've enjoyed to get to know her. Uh, And uh, just when you say salt of the earth people, I think of our next guest. Uh, Because she's kind, she is quiet. Um, but yet she is powerful in what she's been able to accomplish at her own hospital and serving as a leader in our state and our industry when it comes to rural health care and advocacy. Her health system, geography, and population are in many ways unique to her specific organization.
0: That's right. We are talking to, as you mentioned, one of our rural hospital CEO friends right here in
1: Michigan. Our guest today is Karen Cheeseman, CEO of Mackinac Street's Health System. Welcome, for your first time, Karen, to Rural Health Rising.
2: Great. Well, thank you, JJ. Thank you, Rachel. Great to be here with both of you this afternoon.
0: So I do want to just put this little plug in because sometimes people will read the name of your health system and they might say Mackinac. Mackinac. <laughs> But it is Mackinac. So if you're looking at the show notes, don't worry, we didn't misspell it. It ends with a C, but it's pronounced Mackinac. All right. So So to start, Karen, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your work at Mackinac Straits?
2: Sure. So I joined the health system in 2000. Um, At that time, I had an opportunity to return to my hometown and um, give back in a meaningful way to my community. So I I jumped on it. Um, I was really fortunate that I was able to grow as the health system grew. Uh, so the actual health system started in 1954. Mm. And at that time, it was uh, primarily a, a nursing home um, and was really struggling to recruit physicians and and do all the different things that we needed to do to care for the community. Uh, so when I joined the hospital, was at a really pivotal point, uh, determining the, the future direction and, and setting the strategy moving forward. I was able to be a part of a team that designed and built a, a new hospital, uh, was built and opened in uh, 2010, so just over uh, 13 nice. years ago. So it's really been mm-hmm. my privilege Uh, over the last 23 years, uh, to see the hospital grow and develop and uh, serve our community.
1: Mm -hmm. And what a uh, beautiful hospital. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about infrastructure uh, here in the podcast here in just a minute. Um, But before we do all that fun stuff, um, we like to start with kind of a a serious question. And we ask this of each of our guests on this podcast, and it's a simple question. It's called the why. Why? Um, So, Karen, you know, you are, as we just indicated, extremely involved in your community. There's even a road up there named Cheeseman, okay? She's extremely involved in her community. Uh, She's involved in the Michigan Hospital Association. She actually flew uh, on numerous occasions to D.C. for advocacy, as well as she's frequently in in Lansing uh, during those events for advocacy. Um, And you're you're very busy. Uh, You're active. You're engaged. And so... Um, I want to know why. What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do? Because we know you could be doing ten other things. Why? Why? What's your why?
2: I developed a real passion for for rural health care, and um, once you get that that passion, that that drive, boy, it really it really sparks um, and ignites your, your passion to care Mm -hmm. for your community. I, I consider it to be a real, a real privilege to come in each day and work with a team of professionals who dedicate their, their time, their energy, and, and that commitment uh, Mm -hmm. to really give back for the, to the community in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's pretty exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. And when we, um, you know, get to work on things like developing, you know, an outpatient surgical center for our, our community um, that prevents our community members from having to drive, you know, 45 to 60 miles uh, for surgical care. That that really sparks my, my passion. Uh, when we look at providing oncology care here locally, um, that our community members would have to drive great distances for, those are things that, that really motivate and drive me in rural
1: health care. And they certainly do. And I want to thank you for the work that you do uh, in advocating for rural health across Michigan, but ultimately across the country. So uh, an important why and one that you live out every day.
0: So to get into our discussion, let's talk a little bit about Mackinac Strait's health system, because you have some interesting dynamics at play. I think your environment is probably not what people typically think of when they think of a rural hospital. Um, So tell us a little bit about that, your location, your population throughout the year that you're serving and that kind of thing.
2: We are, as you mentioned, Rachel, we're uniquely situated here. We're the first community in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, We are unique in that we have a a five-mile bridge that connects the Upper and Lower Peninsula, in that geography, we sit, uh, we're positioned uh, right in between two of the Great Lakes. Uh, so we have uh, Lake Huron and Lake Michigan um, all within our, our community. And in that geography, that means that we serve a few different island locations. Uh, so we have a medical center uh, located on Mackinac Island that a little community and and the Straits area serves over a million visitors in a in a very Mm. short window time Um, so that Mm. means from the time the uh, the season opens if you will in uh, right about Memorial Day and runs through uh, mid-October so you think about that amount of traffic and and the impact on you know tourism when that occurs uh, people coming through need, they need health care, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the workforce that is needed to support the tourism base. And just on Mackinac Island alone, uh, we bring in over 4,000 workers to support the local economy.
0: Wow. Seasonally. Correct. Oh, wow.
2: Correct. So uh, we look at, you know, what, is, what does that mean for healthcare, and how do we adjust so that we can make sure that we're, um, you know, have the resources uh, to appropriately serve and deliver the care uh, during those windows of time. Additionally, we have another island uh, that's located on Bois Blanc Island, um, so we're providing uh, service for that island as well. It doesn't see quite this well that that Mackinac does. Um, however, um, just as important to serve that transient population on Bois Blanc as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Karen, obviously, uh, Critical Access Hospital uh, in a remote area of Michigan, uh, with a lot of tourists, uh, a lot of happenings there. But uh, recently, a couple of years ago, you actually signed an agreement uh, with My Michigan. Can you talk to us a little bit about what encompassed that and how that's going? Yes.
2: So we sure. Yes. So we formed our, our partnership with My Michigan Health in the fall of uh, two thousand twenty one. And uh, one of the first large initiatives uh, that we worked on uh, together in our partnership uh, was access to an improved electronic medical record, Uh, not uncommon in in many small independent hospitals uh, over the past several years. uh, Many of us have had two and and sometimes three or more uh, transitions with our EMRs. what I mean by that is, uh, we right we started with one, and mm. then the uh, the product sunsetted; it, it was no longer available, yeah. and so it forced mm-hmm. us into a situation where you know, we had to have a solution. When small hospitals started the transition uh, with the EMR, as required by the government years back, it was not uncommon that you would have uh, one EMR in your ambulatory clinic setting, and, and another in your hospital. Uh, so that's, that's what Mackinac Streets was up against. It was really important that we had uh, one record um, mm. for, for care. And so our, our partners at My Michigan Health allowed us to do that. Now that we are on the system together, it really opens up uh, many different opportunities now where we can begin working uh, together. Uh, for uh, for a greater access to care. Uh, so uh, when I think about what we would do differently, we we start to look at how we may um, access different specialists um, throughout the state. Uh, so so really excited to to work on that t- together moving forward.
1: So really the uh, the organization looks the same, right? Uh, you have a board. It functions the same. Maybe a couple members from my Michigan on that board. But you have local autonomy to do the things that you want to do. And so that's a good, I would say that's a good relationship to have uh, where they still allow you to make some important decisions because your community is unique. Uh, compared to other communities that are in the system. And so um, I applaud your efforts with uh, reaching outside, you know, your system to find aware with all to get this project accomplished. We know we looked at Epic uh, installation at our hospital or a larger facility, but it was you know upwards of $20 million. Uh, and that's for both inpatient and outpatient. And that's no one can do that. That's not sustainable and, uh, you know, long term with the cost and the fees. So mm-hmm. uh, we then get hooked up with, you know, a Community Connect product, which sometimes will reduce it anywhere from, you know, 60 to 40 percent. It just depends. Uh, and still that's, you know, for an inpatient a hookup of a $12 million. That's still Not reachable for many. So congrats to you for having the visionary leadership to accomplish that. And sounds like it went relatively well. So congrats to you on all of those efforts.
2: Thank you. You know, I think it's a great example of of what partnerships, you know, can do when you work collaboratively and you look at economies of scale. And and again, you look at strength and supporting and serving your communities and, uh, you know, doing what we do best here, um, again, making decisions locally, um, but but having that support, you know when it when it's needed uh, for some of these mm-hmm. um, outside mm-hmm. areas.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, unique uh, opportunity for you to position yourself and uh, nearest hospital is how far?
2: The nearest hospital, uh, we have one to the north, uh, which would be approximately fifty miles north on i seventy five. Okay, And then uh, we have one uh, to the south, which is another uh, 45 to 50 miles.
1: Wow. So geographically, just pretty much contained right there in your own spot, aren't you?
2: We sure are, you know, and, yeah. and you get back to some of those unique things uh, regarding geography and you look at our, you know, our winter months and just mm-hmm. uh, that day to day travel that that has to occur um, with with the bridge and, and other, yeah. you know, barriers here in the Upper Peninsula.
1: Sure are. So, Karen, you know, throughout this country right now, we're reading headlines. Uh, you know, in our industry, we follow Beckers, uh, healthcare, and uh, you know, a lot of the industry news that comes out of there is at times discouraging, uh, disappointing. Uh, most of it is talking about uh, clinics, hospitals that have closed, shuttered their doors. Uh, you're also looking at, you know, the the investments are drying up in communities. Uh, And also divesting of programs and services. So a lot's happening uh, in healthcare as it relates to lack of services and closures. But in the middle of all this stands Karen Cheeseman and what you're doing up at your hospital system. And that is, you've engaged in a building project. And you know, like I said, the 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 struggling hospitals, a lot of conversation around you know, those uh, those closures and uh, no one's really talking right now of infrastructure. And so um, I guess I'm excited for you. Share with us a little bit about your building project. Um, why, why did you decide to tackle this project uh, compared to maybe other community projects that you could engage in? Um, and the most important, I'm sure, which are listeners, want to know uh, throughout this country is how'd she pay for it? So if you could take us through that journey, I would greatly appreciate it.
2: Sure, you bet. So, you know, mentioned that the, uh, mentioned earlier, the hospital was built in uh, 2010. And over a span of 13 years, we have steadily outgrown our space. Uh, I've always said as a CEO, Growth problems are are the very best problems that that you can have, right? Um, So, you know, when I spoke about adding, you know, outpatient surgery and and looking at uh, all of the different specialists uh, that joined the system to support the outpatient surgery program, uh, they needed not only the the OR space, uh, but they also needed the clinic space uh, to see the patients, you know, preoperatively and postoperatively. Um, So that has certainly been a a tremendous amount of of our growth. In addition to that, we continue to recruit primary care uh, specialists, um, along with a number of other specialists to make sure we're serving the community in in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also added, uh, most recently, uh, just a few years back, we added a retail pharmacy component our community came to us in our community health needs assessment and said that they, they really needed additional access to, to retail pharmacy services. So we dove into that and, and we tackled it and uh, are really pleased um, that we did, again, recognizing the needs of the community. So with all of that being said, at, at some point you, you reach your maximum capacity on, on space. So over the last few years, Uh, we have been working on the the funding uh, so that we could uh, build that additional space and um, provide the space that our community needs and and deserves. Um, I worked uh, closely um, with the uh, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services to obtain an appropriation. And this last budget cycle uh, was, was thrilled to receive a $10 million appropriation that will allow me to build a professional medical office building that will provide an additional 20,000 square feet of space. So what that does is it, um, we've got some modulars on campus right now because that was, Mm -hmm. um, that was what I needed to make it work temporarily. So I had to make that decision. Either I pause on recruitment and pause on the growth, or I put in a temporary solution until I knew that we could you know, construct mm-hmm. the building and mm-hmm. and get to a place where we needed to be. So uh, thrilled to see all of that moving. Uh, we just celebrated our groundbreaking ceremony here uh, just a few weeks ago, and a year from now we'll have twenty thousand additional square feet to work wow. with. Wow!
1: So is uh, sort of the crews on the ground, or is that that not started yet?
2: They are. So we just uh, phase one. We just completed the parking nice. renovations that we'll need to to make the shifts. And uh, here within the week, we'll see the construction fence up and uh, things will start.
1: Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Well, congratulations, Karen, on your advocacy for, you know, funding that was very difficult uh, in the rounds over the last several years to try to get that funding. So congrats on your successful uh, advocacy and, uh, and lobbying for that.
0: Thank you. So your hospital is critical access, but you still have a broad reach across your community. So can you tell us about the challenges that you face as a critical access hospital, and then how do you address those challenges? Sure,
2: Jill. So, you know, in addition to some of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, just surrounding geography and, you know, distance uh, between the other you know, hospitals for care, if I had to highlight, you know, just a few in the time that I have with you this afternoon, uh, you know, one of the um, big challenges that we have in our area is, is housing. Um, We have uh, a lot of limitations uh, when it comes to housing. I mentioned the, you know, the broad base of tourism that we have. And in that market, when it comes to housing, uh, when things are available, in a limited fashion, oftentimes those properties and that real estate is scooped up rather quickly mm-hmm. and it's converted to some type of a uh, vacation rental. And in our area, that's extremely attractive. Um, we live on the Great Lakes. We live in a beautiful area. And so um, when, when people are traveling through, um, that's what they're looking for housing for. Um, and that's that's a challenge. And then I couple that with that transient workforce that I mentioned earlier, right? So when that mm-hmm. seasonal workforce comes in to support the local economy, uh, that workforce needs housing as well. And again, the challenge is, right? We're, it's a limited period of time. so we're we continually continually balancing how we adjust the seasonal housing. and in addition to professionals that we're bringing to the area that require, long-term housing for their
1: families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's give our listeners a sense of what's occurring in Michigan, specifically uh, up North uh, as it relates to staffing and recruitment. Now, geographically um, some would argue you're challenged. Uh, others would argue that it's a, a pointed and a purpose place uh, that people want to go. Um, but you know, when winter hits, you're shut down a little bit with some roadways and some other things. It's got to be a challenge, but um I can only imagine the difficulty I face being in a tri-state border um, is, you know, that we we have purposeful and meaningful individuals that want to travel to these locations and they can get to larger jurisdictions, larger communities or airports, etc. So with that having been said, I would tend to believe that your staff – recruitment for physicians and staff must be difficult maybe not and could you talk to us a little bit about you know the depth of your uh, recruitment efforts and then obviously it was interrupted uh, because of COVID I would assume Uh, and in those shortages that you faced as we all have in the industry what have you done to try to conquer some of that in the environment that we're in so I know that's like 13 questions in one but maybe just talk to us about that if you could
2: you bet. In regards to workforce, things look so much different than they than they once did. You know, when I started my career in healthcare, I worked as a, as a human resource professional, and I recall the days of waiting lists for um, for employees. Um, without without exaggeration, uh, we'd have waiting lists, uh, you know, knee deep for any. Any given uh, position that that we had available, be that nurse aides, be that uh, registration folks, um, you know, nursing positions, etc. Following the public health emergency and all throughout that that landscape has has really changed, and so now we look at how we how we approach workforce, and and it looks so much different than it once did. Right, so we have to we have to think about things. Um, much differently. Um, It's definitely, it can't be reactionary. It's gotta be, uh, you know, very, um, very forward thinking now. And so there's a lot of effort put forward on on how we build the pipeline for for healthcare. Um, So we know that there are some things out there that we can do for a a short-term impact. Um, But we also know when we look at this strategically, there are things that we have to do to focus on the longer term impact and and so so what does that mean and and what are we doing about it so a couple of things you know we're we're needing to get out to our, our community um, earlier you know talking to them as they're nearing high school graduation is is too late how do we speak mm-hmm. with them earlier and get them in in our organization to learn more about um, the the all the various professions that we have, you know, and in our line of work, right? A lot of oftentimes the clinical positions tend to get the most attention. Um, so we think of a hospital right away, right? And we think, well, I we think about nursing positions and and tech positions and um, you know provider positions, uh, be that advanced practice providers, physicians, etc. Uh, we also want to be talking about the the positions that are are non-clinical. So the folks that support us in our areas of accounting and and finance, um, the individuals that play a really critical role in our our medical record record professionals, um, all of those things. Um, And how do we help our young people today understand the investment that will be needed, um, both from a timing standpoint and an educational uh, standpoint? And how do we support that? So we are looking at a a variety of things. Uh, One of the things we're doing is working with our community colleges and universities as to how we strengthen our relationship. Um, How do we convey our needs, um, the areas of greatest needs? And again, looking beyond today, looking five Mm -hmm. to 10 years down the road, uh, what occurs uh, when we start to see those retirements, you know, come forward.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely
2: things like that. And quite frankly, we've got to invest more time into growing our own. Uh, So how do we uh, take the resources that we have and the professionals we have within our organizations and and grow our own programs? Uh, That may mean a nurse aid program uh, to support our our nursing home, which is a really important service in our community. Uh, That may mean a medical assistant program uh, that further supports our our office practices and our, our primary care providers. Um, so a, a very different look. It's going to require a lot of hard work and dedication and, and innovation because we're all we're all fighting for the same labor pool.
1: Absolutely, the challenges are more serious than they've ever been, and uh, it's not that we're making widgets in a factory. We're you know truly saving lives, and the work that we do is mission driven, and uh, it is a special calling for many. Um, But it is a very tough labor market right now. We're hoping that will turn. Um, You know, Karen, let's talk a little bit about some of the other challenges that you and I both face. You know, we're blessed to have a nine-bed psychiatric uh, inpatient facility here, adult only. Um, But uh, a lot of communities do not. And uh, even with my own unit uh, here, uh, we are still challenged with patients boarded in our emergency departments for weeks, uh, adolescent is non-existent practically um, you cannot find a bed um, you must have some significant challenges up where you are um, given geographically um, and the challenges can you share with us a little bit about the mental health crisis occurring in Michigan
2: it's really of utmost concern you know right now and and as you mentioned JJ you know throughout the public health emergency, uh, some of those challenges that existed prior uh, were really exacerbated for a number of, of different reasons um, all throughout the last few years. So we experience, um, as I know my peers, yourself and my peers throughout the state do, um, the, you know, the boarding that takes place in in the emergency room as we as we continue to be challenged for for placement Um here at, at Mackinac Streets, um, you know, we, we don't have an inpatient unit, and we have very few resources for outpatient care within the, the Streets region. So what occurs are the outpatient services that are available. Uh, there's such a high demand that um, the, the supply you know, cannot meet the, the demand that, that is out there. So it's very, very limited. And what happens in that situation are a couple of things. Uh, your primary care providers quickly become a default mechanism um, for your, your patients and your community members who need uh, this type of care. And then when it, when it reaches that really critical mass, uh, the care can't be found or it can't be delivered and to the extent that it needs to be. Um, again, they end up in your emergency room uh, seeking placement. So we have, we've continued to, to struggle with that. Uh, one of the um, solutions that we are working uh, toward is, in, and j- just recently put into place, is a telepsychiatry uh, model. Uh, so that will allow um, our patients and our community uh, to connect remotely to a tele-psychiatrist, uh, we know that um, the psychiatrists and the mental health professionals continue to be in limited supply. And so how do we meet, you know, somewhere in the middle um, to, to continue to provide that, that access in, yeah. in some way?
1: You know, so telepsychiatry is something that we engage in here as well, while we have a full-time psychiatrist and a full-time in-person nurse practitioner, uh, even recruitment. Karen, for psychiatry is almost non-existent. And so, you know, the dependence on telepsychiatry is, is increased significantly. But placement, bad placement, you know, and we know that our friends at MHA, I think it was $55 million uh, under special funding that uh, basically they're the fiduciary for the state. Uh, I believe we'll hear an announcement soon about the few hospitals that have been rewarded uh, this funding to build additional centers. But, you know, much like me, not only do we face that challenge of beds, but Karen, I don't know how it is for you, but transport, EMS transport, do you struggle with that in your area? And, and how does that impact the care that you provide, not only for inpatient transfers, et cetera, but even for psych patients?
2: We sure do. It has become increasingly difficult. In fact, uh, one of one of the things that um, it can be pretty pretty common in, in our day to day is when we can't find placement uh, within the state of Michigan, uh, we, we have to resort to transfers that are, that are, that are out of state. And that has, that adds to its own level of, of complexity, right? When we look at the different payer mixes and uh, the, the legalities, you know, with, with the transfers um, as we cross state lines and not to mention, you know, the burden that it places on the, on the patient, and the burden that it places on on the family uh, when that family support mechanism is is so critical uh, for that level of treatment.
1: Agree. Well, you know, the the opportunity to have some additional centers will be helpful. Hopefully some reform and some funding towards EMS services. Uh, will also provide for a pipeline. You know, we we talk about, well, we need nurses. Well, uh, we need EMTs, medics, we need scrub techs, we need medical assistance. You know, I look at my jobs list and it's it's just a smorgasbord of positions, not just nursing. Um, And so it's across the, you know, the continuum for healthcare, not just here at our hospital, but also those agencies like emergency services. So um, truly appreciate, you know, your perspective on on those areas. And I can't imagine the challenges even in that remote area.
0: Let's talk about, um, still kind of in the same issue related to staffing and workforce, let's talk about some of your advocacy work and your leadership in healthcare. One of the biggest issues we're concerned about here in Michigan right now is the nurse staffing ratio legislation that's been proposed. Um, JJ, we did do a mini on that uh, a, a little while back. Um, but, Karen, can you tell us a little bit about that, and how would that affect your hospital as well as rural hospitals overall were it to be enacted
2: yes so that is something that is really really top of mind right now for for healthcare leaders uh, across the state when i think about you know how i would i would phrase this uh, this proposed legislation and, and you've all probably heard it before uh, the first term that comes to mind is is catastrophic you know, we look at the impact that that this would have on on our health systems uh, both you know small mid-sized and large uh, everyone would be impacted in a in a very mm-hmm. negative way uh, so mm-hmm. recently the um, the hospital Association asked us to complete a, a survey which would detail the impact of this legislation and Uh, We stepped back and and looked at all the areas that would be impacted. So first and foremost, we look at the additional nurses that would be needed to support the mandate. And I'll speak very briefly here this afternoon to what it looks like in a small environment. Uh, So Mackinac Straits would need an additional 15 registered nurses. Those 15 nurses are, are, are simply not available. And, and we know that and so JJ I, I look at you you know as a as a mid-size hospital and that number must be double if not triple
1: oh, absolutely triple uh,
2: right so and they're not available. We know we have 1,700 no. hospital beds that are that are offline right now and um, if we had the resources uh, those beds would be online uh, mm-hmm. this would only further compound the issue. You know, then we look at the monetary aspect of it, and there are many different angles that that one would need to look at. Number one, I look at what it would cost, you know, Mackinac Streets. As a rural hospital, we'd spend well, well over $2.5 million. Uh, by the time you you look at all of the recruitment costs, providing we oh, yeah. thought they were out there and available, right? You look at benefit packages, were. you bet, everything. Everything yeah. from uh, from A to Z. So there's the uh, there's the front end um, financial impact, and then also, you know, recognizing this proposed legislation would have fines and penalties uh, that would be associated with it. Um, so uh, let's say somebody presents to sure. our emergency room for you know, much needed emergent care, and we may not at that given moment have the staffing rush ratio that, that is met. So, right. We're faced with the decision. uh, Do we uh, turn care away uh, for this patient, which we cannot do right in an emergency room, Mm -hmm. there are MTALA guidelines uh, that,
1: that govern that
2: care. And then, you know, what happens then, right. When they go to the next hospital, um, who will very likely be in that similar situation? So, we look at the impact of those monetary fines and, and penalties, and, and they're substantial.
1: Yeah, significant challenges, uh, Karen. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, what happened during COVID, we we have to give some thought to this. Is that our competitors? You know, in healthcare, which we are competing at times for staff. Uh, started offering, you know, sign on bonuses that hospitals like yours and mine could never afford. $50,000 per individual. Uh, that for me to recruit f- 35 more nurses at a sign on bonus of $50,000 or $40,000 or even $10,000 uh, is impossible, especially when we're at a break even and at times even of loss every year to provide services to our community. So it's reckless, in my opinion. I think it's, you know, this idea that one size fits all in this legislation. We've said it before, Rachel and I, there are bad actors in healthcare. There are Mm -hmm. bad actors in every industry. We're not saying that they don't need to be held accountable. What we're saying is not on our backs. And on the backs Mm -hmm. of people like Hillsdale and Mackinac Straits, um, we can't do that. And uh, so fighting that legislation uh, is going to be very important. And if it passes, I fear the greatest challenge we're going to have is where are those hospitals going to divest programs or where are they going to either sell or close. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to be the reality of it, which means what? Fewer services in communities like Hillsdale uh, and longer travel distances for patients and their families. uh, And ultimately care will be negatively impacted as a result of this legislation. And I'm not being dramatic. I'm simply stating that this is an impossible uh, an impossible feat for hospitals like ours.
0: Right, right.
1: So with that, you know what? Everything else is going well, right, Karen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: right.
1: <laughs> so, and I'll let you set silent on my next comment, uh, Karen, because, uh, you know, I've, I'm a advocate to ensure that our patients receive great care and that we have a facility that's open for great care. And, and during the pandemic, you know, certain things occurred, which were very frustrating to me, like shutting down our ORs. Uh, really, never should have happened. I'm not asking you to comment because I'm just going to give you my views. Uh, it was and is in among the safest places in our healthcare industry, is in the ORs. And so, when we shut that down, it impacted the quality of care, and we're learning that uh, right now. But you know, th- that also leads us in as we talk about nurse ratios. Is that you know we're all uniquely designed right now in our respective hospitals. Uh, for ensuring the safety of our patients. I don't want someone to understand after listening to this podcast that our patients aren't safe, you know, but, but for the government to get into our patient rooms and to dictate certain thresholds when we know what's best for our patients is very concerning. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, uh, how individual hospitals handle this?
2: Absolutely. Hospitals, you know, have had, have had staffing ratios in, in place for, for as long as, as any of us, can remember uh, we we are experts in this in this field and and you know, we work with with care teams that have great expertise in in the amount of resources that are needed to to safely care uh, for patients and they're also um, you know very very strong very thoughtful in in what it takes to adjust those those ratios as we know uh, there's there's no two days in healthcare that, that look the same. Um, So we're continually, um, you know, making those adjustments to, to properly serve our, our populations. And that looks different, right? It looks different in the emergency room. It looks different in the operating room and it, and it looks different in, um, you know, in OB services uh, for OB care and delivery. Yes, it does. You bet. So we have professionals who work in, in all of those respective areas that are very, uh, skilled in, in making those determinations um, and, and we need to, to continue to do that. Um, you know we we've, we've done it all along um, and it will continue to do that. Our, our clinical care teams are, are very strong advocates um, for, our, for our patients and they will continue to be we don't need legislation to, to set that for us. You know, and I think it's also important to note G, that uh, we know um, that there is uh, an, another state out there uh, that has,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right, has passed uh, some legislation for they have for man, you know, mandation, right, and mm-hmm. and we know that when we look at that state, um, there there is no evidence that uh, this uh, legislation Im- improved uh, the delivery of care. No. Right.
1: No. That it, right. Absolutely. It,
2: it didn't. Right. It didn't make the unit safer.
1: No. Uh, it, no. it didn't
2: change the, the quality measures. Uh, so I think that's really important to note. Uh, I know that I am talking with uh, with my legislators any opportunity uh, that I get uh, because I think it's it, this can't be understated. It's it's that important.
1: Absolutely. And you know I would encourage our listeners today if you don't know about this, uh, get in the know. Um, have conversations with your state of Michigan legislature. And if you're listening outside of Michigan, which we do have a big audience that listens outside of here, obviously um, you in your respective state could look at this as well and be prepared because so goes one state. So goes many others that want to try to follow the lead. So please be speaking to your legislature about the dangers of this type of legislation, which will result in closed hospitals and care that will be compromised. So, Karen, you're doing great things up at Mackinac Straits. You have a great visionary leadership. It sounds like you have a great team that uh, gets behind you and uh, that you work with side by side and together you're impacting uh, rural health and we appreciate your advocacy, your hard work. We appreciate the time you've taken to be with us today because uh, believe it or not, the hour has flown by and we really, really appreciate the time that you've dedicated and given up uh, to speak with us and to our listeners uh, at uh, Rural Health Rising. So thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, JJ. Great to be a part of this.
1: And before we close, we love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Karen, we want to know what is the most rural experience memorable that you have or something that's unique to rural life that you can share with our listeners who may not have experience with the rural life.
2: I was I was thinking about this one JJ what would I say publicly about this one <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah we've heard it all from chasing uh, chickens chasing politicians to you name it uh, we've heard it all but uh, I I'm interested to hear about what happens up north
2: honestly one of the things I thought about when I looked this over was when we were we had just opened the uh, the hospital in the 2010 and uh, one of the things we were doing is we were bringing dignitaries uh, through right to show them um, what we had accomplished and also we were already planning the next phase of of building and so at that time uh, Bart Stupek was was in Congress and um, he was he was really active in, in our project and and what we were doing and you probably know he's got roots um lived over on the West end in, in Menominee. And so, yeah. um, he was a, a friend and a, a really strong advocate for, for rural health. And he had a, a death threat, um, threats, plural mm. against him. And so
1: mm. whenever
2: he traveled, um, he had security, security. And so yeah. I got this call one day and, and I wasn't my predecessor was was CEO at the time, and he knew it was coming, and he got busy with something, and he forgot to tell me. So I got a call from our front registration, and they said, Karen, um, we've got someone here um, this morning. They just flashed a badge, and um, they told me they're with the Secret Service. Um could you come down
0: and and talk with them?
1: (laughs) In our town? What is this? Right. They're probably like,
0: there's no way this is really Secret Service. What's the game here?
1: (laughs) And sure it was.
0: It was a great education about, you
2: know, mapping it all out and and getting involved throughout the event.
1: So we get dignitary, too up here uh, or down here, I should say, in in Hillsdale, Michigan. Uh, you know, we've had some Amish and some other folks, but uh, we've we rarely get uh, the opportunity. I'm sure up on the island, uh, all the politicians, all the uh, actors. Uh, love to go up there. So certainly a groundswelling of people. We did enjoy some time together uh, on the island at the Michigan Hospital Association's annual conference, which was always a fun time to get together, but also a time of a lot of seminars, a lot of work. And and um, Karen, again, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing in a very important part of our community, uh, serving a population in remote America, essentially, and the hard work that you put forward. And congratulations on your building project and your advocacy efforts and the ability to to get some funding uh, for that much needed project. And we're just encourage you to keep up the great work up there.
2: appreciate the time this afternoon.
1: Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in.
0: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising.
1: And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ, Rachel is at Rural Health Rach, and you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong.
0: Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.